This is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. The 7th Avenue Project is next. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, two interviews that I dug up from the vaults, you know, like fine wine and all that. In part one of the show, the award-winning nonfiction writer Tracy Kidder. We heard from him on the show a few weeks ago talking about his latest book, Strength and What Remains. And today we're going to listen to him discussing his previous work, his Vietnam War memoir titled Might Attachment. And uh, believe me when I say it is not your typical soldier's story. Neither, for that matter, is the novel we'll hear about in the second half of the hour. It's the most recent work from San Francisco-based novelist Andrew Sean Greer. I spoke to him in 2008. Okay, part one of today's show. Tracy Kidder from 2006, talking about his memoir, My Detachment. Tracy is celebrated for his books about other people's lives, but this time around he took on his own life, specifically the year he spent as a young army lieutenant in Vietnam. My detachment is not, however, what you'd expect from a Vietnam War memoir. Tracy was never in combat, for one thing. His real battle was internal. The book shows us a painfully conflicted young man, disenchanted with the war but still hoping to be a hero, having a hard time with military authority but still trying to be a good officer, and imagining he's ruggedly independent, but still clinging desperately to his old college sweetheart, though she's lost interest in him. Let's go to the interview. Tracy Kidder, welcome. Thank you, Robert. I'm glad to be here. You You never fought. You were on a base, not far from the combat zone. Never far from combat. But But, that was often true for almost everybody in Vietnam. Most people weren't in combat, but you were never very far from it. Right. But your job, the job of your detachment, was technically uh, a desk job. (laughs) (laughs) Was. Nonetheless, you you wrote a number of letters home Uh in which things were considerably more uh, dramatic. Yes, indeed. I I was trying to portray a a rugged guy with smudges on his face from sleeping in a foxhole, one hand holding an M16, the other resting protectively on the shoulder of a Vietnamese boy. I invented a couple of Vietnamese boys to befriend um, for my girlfriend. You did that, and then even for some years after you got back, uh, you didn't out and out say, I was in combat, but you let hints drop, or you let people's assumptions go if they ever Sometimes. It depended. Sometimes. If I was, uh, I I can only recall, uh, I think, a couple of occasions where I I actually made exaggerated claims. Uh, And usually, I'm pretty sure I was drunk, both instances. I I don't mean that to, I, I hope I'm not saying that to get me off the hook. But I do tell that story of that, the last time I did it. Uh, I'm drunk. I was drunk at a, a party, and for some reason I was feeling very aggrieved and started crying in the backseat of my car. And, uh, and this guy asked me what was wrong. And I, you know, I didn't know what was wrong, but I find myself saying, Did you? He, known I'd, he knew I'd gone to Vietnam, of course. And I, I said, Did you ever kill anyone, buddy? <laughs> he said, No. Did you? And then I said, I don't want to talk about it. So it's not exactly a story, but a freighted suggestion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting. You, you were from a generation 
that um, was raised on, on war stories and, mm-hmm. you know, ideas of military valor. And yet, at the same time, you graduated from college in 1967. Seven. Uh, the tide had turned against the war. The, the same generation was now very much anti-war. And mm-hmm. you were sort of stuck in the middle between these two completely different sentiments, being a war hero and being a war resistor. Right. Split consciousness or whatever. I, I mean, I knew there was a war in Vietnam when I enlisted. I was still in college when I enlisted. They had a one-year ROTC program because they were looking for bodies. And a friend of mine said, hey, you know, when you get out of college, you got to join the Army anyway, and it's better to be an officer. He's wrong on both counts, I think. And then I went to basic training, and I realized, oh, I'd made a bad mistake. It wasn't so much that I was against the war, though, you know, I'm sorry to say, because I should have been. As I felt I'd separated myself from my social class, and everybody on the other side over there seemed to be having a wonderful time, and here I was in uniform with my head shaved. They were all protesting and partying and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Make love, not war. Yeah. I I would have been happy to do that. So you you arrived at the base where you were going to serve out your year in Vietnam, and you were, because of ROTC, already a lieutenant, and Mm -hmm. you were suddenly in charge of eight guys who'd been there for a while. Yeah. You were about as green as they come. Yep, new guy. Describe this a group. cherry, as they'd say. Yeah, describe this, this group of eight men, your detachment. Um, they were fairly rebellious, at least the crew that was there when I got there. I, had t- I was taking over the detachment from a lieutenant, I think, who had lost interest in doing much. And I had been ordered by my commander back in Chulai to clean up that detachment. Um, and in matters of group hygiene and things like that, it had kind of gotten lax. <laughs> I would have said anarchy, actually, from your description. Well, yeah, I, it felt that way to me, anyway, as the young lieutenant who'd been ordered to clean up this place. And uh, and I, you know, was, of course, extremely self-conscious. And, you know, I also had this notion about myself. My men were going to respect me, and my, my men were going to love me. Um, they weren't disposed to do that. I, I, you know, and, and they, uh, I, there was a man named Pancho. By the way, that was a nickname that the men had given him. And I remember him just eyeing me. He had dark glasses, so he could never see his eyes. And he'd make these strange little laughs, you know. And um, one night, they'd had a meeting about me. And, you know, and, and I pretended that I wasn't concerned. But then I go down to my hooch. I had, I had a little hooch. It was a, just a, a rudimentary building with screen walls and a tin roof. And I remember lying there in the mortar rounds going overhead and just wishing I had nothing to do with this place. And the, there's a knocking, there's a banging screen door, in comes Poncho and sits down. And he said, we, we don't like some of the things you're doing around here, Lieutenant. I said, well, that's too bad. And he said, we can shoot you anytime we want, Lieutenant. Um, and, and I remember the, the next day after this warning from Poncho, uh, I remember not being so afraid of what he might do to me as what my men thought of me. Mm. You know, uh, so I, I really think I was much more afraid of humiliation than of anything else. So you weren't too worried that he was actually going to shoot you, but you do say that it, it seemed to you that there was a war within a war going yes. on there. Well, the war within the war being enlisted men and, and uh, versus officers to some degree. Um, the army, it seems to me now, was coming apart at the seams. And, it was such an unfair war. And, and, I mean, just domestically, it, it was fought by the working class and by and by poorer classes in the United States, almost exclusively. I mean, you portray an army so dysfunctional by the time you got there in uh, 1968 that a guy under your command would just say to you casually, we can shoot you. Well, 
Uh, what was I going to do? Report him? I would have thought so. I, he hadn't said he was going to shoot me. He had simply <laughs> pointed out that he that he could. I mean, I'm I'm just trying to think of his defense. You know, the the other thing is, I I wouldn't have because it would have so terribly violated this image I had of myself. But um, in a way, you know, as I as I thought about it later, he was trying to explain something to me. I, in a way, I, I you know, I probably I should have been grateful. Um, I lived with these eight enlisted men, and I began to learn of their tremendous resentment toward the officers who would harass them for their haircuts and their boots and so on and so forth. Uh, the Army, I think, was getting this pretty dysfunctional. I, I don't think anyone would argue with that, but I do. I think it's important to remember that, that many people were very good at what they did. Um, maybe too good <laughs> in retrospect. There were a couple incidents there that you talk about that rang an eerie bell. One was... When you were um, talking to a lieutenant who was in charge of what they called the POW cage, where mm -hmm. they kept prisoners of war, at least for yeah. short periods, and he said some guys in civilian clothes with dark glasses <laughs> had been in asking if he had any prisoners for them, meaning, in his eyes... Someone to torture. Someone to torture. That's, what I, that's my memory of this, yeah. Look, you know, I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I, I wish that this country would not entrust the decisions as to whether or not to go to war to, to people who have never seen one, been in the military, is that I think people who've been in the military, by and large, know what's going to happen if you launch a war. I mean, everyone ought to know, but somehow we seem to forget from one war to the next. Atrocities are, going to, are inevitable, in my opinion. You know that you're going to kill an enormous number of civilians, more than, more than you, you'll kill more civilians than, than troops. And, and in our case, as in Vietnam, now we, we don't know how many Iraqis we've killed. We don't know how many Vietnamese we killed. The, the range here is enormous. Uh, you know that you're going, to, uh, you're going to deeply offend the local people. You know, I mean, an invading army, it's worse than having tourists in your town. <laughs> I've said that, I mean that jocularly. You know that, that a certain number of your troops are going to come back hideously wounded and, and that a certain percentage of them will be wounded psychologically. I want to go back, Tracy, to, to you and, and Lieutenant Kidder. Um, <laughs> this is page 112. Right. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You would do this to me. I'm sorry to do this to you, but you put it in the book. <laughs> I did. <laughs> this is a letter you wrote to your girlfriend yep. back home. Yep. Um, but I didn't mail it. Right. Do you want me to read? Yeah. This is your receipt. What you may have done to me or I to you in the past is nothing alongside this little agony you built by neglect. And you will not understand why or what, it, what that means. It's gone now, as a, and as a matter of fact, it came and went swiftly. But I believed in you and in being good and fine in punishments and rewards, not as absolutes, but fine contingencies. And I could have spent my life on them if you had paid me only the respect which I have richly deserved from you and you had taken leave of me honorably. <laughs> do not come near me and do not write me a reply or I will make you and whatever you love this month very sorry and I mean that as you only can when you know your capabilities do I have to go on? <laughs> I will <laughs> yeah sure I have nothing to lose I really lost my virginity over here I shot a man through the head and little pieces of his brain and a great quantity of blood colored my gun and my clothes and my face I never cried so hard over you but not unlike you, I am becoming a whore of a different sort. I like it. I like it, you filthy, rotten bitch. One letter from you at any one time would have done so much for me, you f***ing bitch. I was drunk. But, uh, and I didn't mail it. I can yeah. say that for the young lieutenant. 
yeah. I was. You hadn't actually shot any guy through. Uh, absolutely yeah. not. Thank God. Uh, why? Why I wanted to be a person who had? I don't know. Um, you know, during a war, the, particularly that war, the majority, the great majority of soldiers were not in combat. In the barrooms of America after the war, the proportions shifted. I, I spent in another book a, a couple of couple of years writing with a police officer, and I can't tell you how many people he arrested who claimed their problems started in Vietnam, who had been in diapers when the when Saigon fell. I don't have a satisfactory answer to the question of why it is that one would want to be a person who had seen lots of murder and mayhem and had committed some himself. It's the worst romantic nonsense. Um, that somehow or other this is a a rite of passage, or I'm sorry to use that cliche, but, uh, you know, there's something that you ought to have done to be, become a man. I, I, I know that for myself, I certainly wouldn't have minded being a person who had been in combat, but I wasn't a person who wanted to be in combat. Yeah. So many things are interesting about that letter. One for me is that in The Voice, I hear one writer above all. F. Scott Fitzgerald? I was going to say Hemingway. Hemingway. Well, yeah, Hemingway. Either one. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Hemingway. But there, every so often there's a little jazz age diction from, from Fitzgerald thrown in. Yeah. <laughs> Mostly Hemingway, yes. Hemingway in spirit, at least. Yeah. And uh, it's funny because I, I still think of him as a, as a really important and uh, a wonderful writer. But uh, he certainly was, um, he certainly did manage somehow to make me think of war in romantic terms. The tragic hero. Though. The tragic hero. And he had such power over a generation or even two generations of American men. I think that's true. And especially those who wanted to be writers. Oh, yeah. Like yourself. Well, you know, he introduced me to the idea of the author as uh, himself a hero. Yeah. Yeah. We now know about Hemingway a lot more than we we knew then or were willing to admit then. But, you know, after his suicide especially, it became clear this is a guy who was deeply self-destructive. He... he, He was wounded a lot. I mean, by the time he died, I think he had more than 100 serious injuries in his life, a number of them self-inflicted. Well, there was that, there was that one story of his fishing uh, with his friend, and, they, and they're trying to shoot the fish, and they end up shooting themselves in the legs. He <laughs> shot his own shins tr- while trying to machine gun sharks. <laughs> there were a number of things like that. There was something really masochistic about him, mm-hmm. you know? And he loved being wounded. There are pictures of him smiling with bandages mm-hmm. uh, from throughout his life. Mm-hmm. And that... American manhood seemed to identify with that. Is it really? Well, of, of, of a certain social class. I mustn't forget that, you know, there were a lot of kids, I think, who were in Vietnam. I was in Vietnam with who hadn't read Hemingway. Um, some of them hadn't finished high school. Yeah, yeah. You know, he wasn't... But there's something else out there in the culture. You know, and it, maybe it's just that, you know, that tendency of youth to, to imagine it, itself, you know... Um, Doing doing adventurous things and noble causes and risking life and limb and and also I think most youth imagining itself coming out of everything unscathed. I was wondering how you felt reading that letter aloud. It still makes me wince, but it's not. I mean, it's, I think one of the reasons I wrote this book. It's not, I hope it's not the main one, but for therapeutic reasons. At a certain point, I you know I wanted to come, live up to the psychological implications of this deliberately ambiguous title. Uh, my detachment. My detachment. And I do know that, you know, m- memories, painful memories, um, are, at le- when they're out in the open, at least they can't ambush you anymore. It is, it was that, 
over the years, they, they these memories would creep up on me the way memories do. But some of them had felt like they had the power to virtually strangle me. You know, you would I would be twenty three years old again and in uniform for that instant. The, and 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 when and now that they're out there, I mean, I don't I don't I don't mind. You know, I don't I really don't mind. Who knows this about me? I'm, who cares? My guest is Tracy Kidder. We're discussing his Vietnam War memoir, My Detachment. So the title, which is a pun, it refers to the military detachment that you commanded in Vietnam and also detachment from your youthful self, in a way. Well, I think, it, I think there are about 16 different possible meanings, all, all of them intended, even the ones I haven't thought of. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, my detachment. It's just, it is also in part my, a story of my detaching from that, at least that costume that I was trying to wear there. Did you also have to detach from the embarrassment and maybe shame about who you were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. You've spent your career writing about other people. Mm-hmm. But now you, you, you've chosen, after all these years, to actually write about yourself. Yeah, it's the last time I'll do this. <laughs> was it the toughest book you've written? Well, no, in some ways. It, it, I did it over such a long period of time. Um, I, no, I wouldn't say it was the toughest, but it was certainly different from what I was, what I was trying to do in, in other books. I do feel, and I maybe shouldn't say this, but if anybody reads anything that I've written 40 years from now, I suspect it might well be this book, and maybe Mountains Beyond Mountains. Um, I don't know why I say that, except that, uh, well, I don't know why I say that. I was talking to a teacher today who, for her, among school children, was a really important book, so it may depend on who the reader is. Yeah, well, that's fine with me. <laughs> I wrote that one, too, I think. <laughs> um, did you have to fight the temptation in writing about yourself to build yourself up, or did you have to fight the temptation to really beat yourself up? The, the latter, actually. Was it necessary to forgive yourself? Yeah, in a way. That's that's nicely... I mean, that's one way to put it, sure. Yeah, I, well, or to accept it. Accept myself, as I was then, and as I am now. Yeah. Did you have to commit, when you dove into this, to the maybe uncomfortable proposition that you, you couldn't really... Um, couldn't leave anything out, couldn't um, soften anything in order to make yourself look a little better? I felt that that was important, yeah. Um, but I wanted to do it with a tone, with a tone of, uh, 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 an honest tone of amusement and some, uh, from time to time wincing over it, but um, not that tone that says I'm not this person anymore. Not that. Right. I'm not sure many of us could do that, what you did. I mean, to really show ourselves... In all of our deceits and weaknesses and well, I did it failures. Sort of, I did. You know, we write in privacy, we writers, and then, and then, you know, I, look. Once a book is published, I don't have to uh, hear what others think about it. I can simply just close it off. I mean, you know, my, my I have a I have a dear friend and editor, Richard Todd. He's been helped me for years and years. And I said to him at a certain point, I I'm not sure I want my children to read this book, and and he said, Oh, your kids will be fine. And then he paused and he smiled and he said, it's your wife I'd worry about. Really? <laughs> he was joking. She she doesn't seem to mind, although I noticed when she read it, her looking at me from time to time, <laughs> slightly askance. Was this the first time for people who know you well, for them to hear some of these? I suspect stories? so. Yeah. It's got to be tough. So far, I haven't, I don't think anyone has taken, well, I don't know. Maybe they've crossed me out of their address books. 
You say it was also necessary um, not just to detach yourself from your subject, your your former self, but then to acknowledge that in some ways you're still that person? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How so? Well, I mean, how could I not be? There's a there's a continuity in, in human behavior. I suspect I still have got a fair amount of romantic claptrap running around in my head, banging around somewhere in the in my head. I um you know, one is still the same person even if you're, you know, suppose you've completely mended your ways. Well, part of why you the reason you mend your ways is is, is in reaction to that person you were before and and i mean it it we don't live long enough to get really far away from our childhoods or our adolescences my adolescence was rather long i think longer than many <laughs> yeah and, this this does strike me as a book about a really young person yeah it is we were very young i was 23 years old yeah and i don't i don't think you could fight wars without the young yeah without the the, the majority of the participants being young because i'm not sure most truly mature human beings would would do something quite so awful, stupid. <laughs> you know, I, I think I used the word failures a moment ago when I was describing, you know, some of the the foibles of your younger self. And I, I want to amend that because it seemed like most of your missteps really had to do with holding yourself to impossibly high standards. Mm-hmm. Do you still do that? Oh, I don't think so. Not, not, not in private behavior. I try to hold myself to a pretty high standard as a writer. I, you know, I don't know. It's not for me to judge whether I succeed or not. I mean, I wanted this book to be accurate, but it is accurate to my my own my own memory of how I was. In a way, I don't want to be anymore. I have a friend, a wonderful poet named Michael Ryan, who has a lovely poem. The last line of which is, "I would be done with what I was." Mm. Are you ever tempted to? I don't know to gild things just a little bit or, you know, tell a fish story now and then and then suddenly think, mm, I did all that before. Sure. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. I, you know, I, I, I'm i still partly a fiction writer in my mind, I, you know, but I tried to avoid that here. Uh, yeah, sure. I, we, we're always improving stories, we writers. Um, there's an incident in the book where years after returning from Vietnam, you get together again with one of the guys who was under your command. He's the, the ne'er-do-well, kind of shady character who's known as Poncho. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who told you not long after you took up your post there that, well, we can shoot you if you... Anytime we want. Anytime we want. If you, uh, make you know... Make life too difficult for us. Make life too that difficult for us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you get together with him. He came to see me. Yeah. And, and it becomes clear to me as a reader that, first of all, you like him. I always liked him. I got to ask about that. This is a guy who, first of all, told you he could shoot you. He does shoot a dog for mm. for what seems like very little reason. He has a dog he yeah. likes, but decides that it's sick. It's not really terribly sick, and he kills it. He smuggles guns out of Vietnam. <laughs> He's up to all kinds of nasty stuff. Yeah, it's true. Uh, sort of an outlaw. Why'd you like him? Because uh, he was an outlaw, I guess. I, I don't know. I don't know. There was something so engaging about him. And and so different and 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 wild, you know. Can I suggest and, something? And so yeah. not you, and so not me, and so not me, and so not a person whom I'd known before. And I found him interesting. Sometimes, sometimes scary. Sometimes there were things I didn't. You no, know, of course there were things I didn't like. But he was so adventurous, and um, 
And, and there's a line that he delivered. I mean, I actually tape recorded I, I, that conversation that we had when he came to see me many, many years later. And so I, I have that dialogue for absolutely right. But he said at some point, I never, may I read it? Yeah. He said, uh, I never had any great plans to being anybody, but when I'm involved in something, I'm always scheming because I don't like things to be the normal everyday drudgery. And if I may, I'll just go on. As he continued saying that he wanted to travel more, that it was in his blood, it occurred to me that he had just stated the essential difference between us back when we'd been soldiers. He had wanted to have an interesting life. I had wanted to be interesting. Well, let's let's talk about the the thing that then happens, a little, little incident. A lot of people wouldn't even have remarked on it, but um, you're at a restaurant having lunch with him after mm-hmm. you guys have gotten together again. You're leaving. You've talked. And uh, we've we've run out of things to say. Yeah, yeah. You want me to read? Yeah. Okay. We lingered over coffee. Finally, it seemed as though there was nothing more to say. We got up to leave. Sliding out of the booth, I knocked the cushion off the bench. It fell beneath the table. I got down on one knee, stuck my hand under the table, and was groping for the cushion. When I heard Pancho say musingly to himself, "Same old lieutenant." So what's that mean to you? <laughs> well, it means that he saw me in a way that, that was probably pretty accurate back then and was seeing um, the similarities now. I mean, you know, but I, 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 it means more than I can say. A guy who picks up a fallen cushion, what's wrong with that? And what's the, the guy who, dro- who knocked the cushion off and is trying to <laughs> groping around, you know? Um, yeah, just sort of <laughs> clots, I guess. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry. I uh, I can't give you an exegesis for that. That's okay. That's okay. Well, Lieutenant, I mean, Tracy Theater, <laughs> it's really been great talking to you. Nice talking to you, Robert. Always nice. Thank you. And that was Tracy Kidder from 2006 discussing his Vietnam War memoir, My Detachment. His other books include Strength in What Remains, Mountains Beyond Mountains, House Among School Children, and Soul of a New Machine. I'm Robert Polly, and this is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. And now for part two of today's encore presentation of the 7th Avenue Project, featuring interviews of the pair of prominent writers. In the second half of the show, the San Francisco-based novelist Andrew Sean Greer, recorded in 2008. Here's me back then with a bad cold introducing him. And now a conversation with the novelist Andrew Sean Greer. He first came to many readers' attention with his 2004 bestseller, The Confessions of Max Tivoli. That novel used a fanciful premise, a man aging in reverse, to explore the gulf between our inner and outer selves. 
Andy Greer's latest book, The Story of a Marriage, charts another psychic divide between ourselves and those we think we know best. The plot turns on secrets and surprises, so Andy and I will do a lot of tap dancing around certain details to avoid spoiling things for you. But here are the rough outlines. The narrator is Pearly Cook, a young housewife living with her husband and son in San Francisco's Sunset District in the year 1953. Pearly's dreams are ordinary dreams of safety, security, and normal middle-class existence. But the Cook family isn't ordinary, not by the close-minded standards of the 1950s, and normalcy is not in the cards. Andy Greer says the book was inspired by a bit of lore from his own family. It was a story that my grandmother told me. She told, I think, everyone in my family, it turns out, um, in different versions, and nobody believed her because it sounded like a crazy story, which was that when she was uh, a young wife in Kentucky, married to my grandfather, that there was a man, a family friend who took her on a car ride in the woods and uh, stopped the car and turned to her and said, Leona, um, I have to tell you something. I've been your husband's lover in the war and I want to leave with him. I mean, this is, I think it was around 1952 or three, and um, that's all I know of the story. The characters in this book don't know really basic things about each other, and even about themselves in some cases. Just wondering, um, you ever dissemble? You ever fool anybody the way some of these characters do? Oh my God, do I ever dissemble or fool people? <laughs> I would say I don't. I would say I have no secrets. I think really? I'm one of those people. Really? Yeah. Wow. Or very few minor ridiculous ones. <laughs> yeah. I, maybe that's true. Um, I think because I grew up in the 70s with psychological culture where the idea is if you have, if you repress something that it would give you cancer, basically, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, is how I grew up. Yeah. But I'm from a Southern family where when you reach a certain age, you look at your family and you're like, wait a second, the story everyone told me doesn't make any sense. Mm. There's a couple years missing or like, why did everyone go to Florida? You know, like things don't make sense. And you start asking and people act weird and you think you don't understand your family. And then later some incredible story comes out told to you by usually the spouse of the people who are not related and you're like, oh, I no, oh, it all makes sense. I'm not crazy. Everyone just, this thing happened, everyone covered up. So that's my experience in my family is uh -huh. always, there's some, if something feels weird, it's because they've covered up a story. Now, unfortunately, everyone knows that they don't tell me the stories anymore <laughs> because I put them in books. So I can't find out certain things. <laughs> Let's talk about your protagonist, your narrator, uh, Pearly Cook. Um, is this your first female protagonist for a novel? Um, it's the first one in first person. In Path of Minor Planets, there was a major character, Denise, told in close third person. But this is definitely the first. Is this true? Yeah, yeah. What, if anything, did you do consciously to make her plausible as a woman? I, I thought about it as getting her character right and not imitating a woman. Mm -hmm. Um and a lot of that had to do with, I had her really angry for a long time in a lot of drafts. And I, I had to change it because it seemed like the wrong way to go. It didn't seem like her. 
And I don't know if that means it doesn't sound like, seem like a woman would tell the story that way. At 70, looking back on her young self, still angry about things, is just, it seemed like that would just be so painful mm-hmm. to still be angry. Hmm. Um, so I actually went through a lot of what I wrote and, and changed it and made her empathetic towards the other characters. Um, and that transformed the book and maybe made her, for me, a more persuasive character to write. I have no idea if it's persuasive as a woman. I, I try not to think about it. Are you a fan of the, the movies of Douglas Sirk? You know, I, have, I am. I haven't seen them in a while. <laughs> I haven't seen them in a while. Um, those technicolor, hmm. lavish melodramas. Which were made in the 50s. Yeah. Often about women and their concerns in a melodramatic fashion, but about women's lives as opposed to men's, which was... Well, this is a melodramatic fashion here, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's crises, but the crises aren't about um, beating up people or killing Indians or doing any of the other things that men in 1950s movies were doing. Yeah. It's about relationships. It's about the home, about trying to maintain some kind of domestic order. Well, and I thought about it. And I, because I, I realized I had set up for myself, I wanted to do this after the Max Tivoli book, which was which exhausted me to write. I wanted a domestic book, um, but I wanted it to be, I guess, a page turner still. Mm-hmm. So I had set up myself. Here was a woman who was trapped in her house. It takes place of, over a couple of months. In a way, nothing happens. But to the reader, it should feel like things are happening all the time. So yeah, it's the same effect that it's all interior and shifting views of other people and just very small counting the objects in the room yeah i had long scenes of her doing housework that i that i cut too Uh, uh just to think about it well one of the things that uh is omnipresent in this story of yours set in 1953 is war it's during the korean war uh, the early parts of the story uh, uh, take place during World War II, and then there's actually some later um, references to the Vietnam War. So war is everywhere. The men are, you know, traditionally all the men are marching off to war. In this book, none of the men are. I know, isn't that strange? <laughs> we have a conscientious objector in, from World War II. We have a guy who's a draft dodger during World War II. He's eventually um, drafted, but he stays out of much of the war. Um, we have a son who declines to go to the Vietnam War, you know. Yeah. But at the same time, we have um, women staying home and trying to take care of these men, protect them from the war, the consequences of war. There was that phrase, the home front, you know. Women had their own front to secure. It seems to me that Pearlie is sort of a warrior on that front. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's what I thought about. I think I surprised myself. I thought when I was starting the book, because the short story I wrote that this is based on is just about her relationship with her husband and this stranger. I was really surprised when it. I started putting these war stories in it. And the stories that interested me were not the ones of men going off and fighting the war, but something else. And I got so interested because I was reading the women's parts of the war and memoirs and things. Um how really hard it was, how really hard it was for the women at home. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously nothing like being on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. But that aside, they had just been through the Depression and then they had to do this rationing and they had to confront the idea of, of death and had to kind of smile about it in a 
very odd way. Um, and I think by the time the Korean War came along, at least in all the newspapers, articles I read, I, the draft is still on, it never stopped, you know. Um, it, was, it just seemed like it was too much, it was never going to end. Yeah. Fought the war, lost so many lives, won it, here's another one for you. Only a few years later. Only a few years later. And a very bloody one, one that people have largely forgotten. And that it did not end to anyone's satisfaction. Right. Stalemate. Right. And wasn't even a peace treaty really signed officially, mm. I believe, or something? It just really... And America was very frustrated. Why didn't we take those communists all the way to China? And other people who were saying, why, why were we even why doing were this we even still? There, yeah. 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 It was definitely a foreshadowing of the Vietnam War. I think so. And, and humiliating in some way, I could tell. Yeah, it was the first war America had really not decisively won. And but Eisenhower was just president and then kind of retreated. I think MacArthur was humiliated mm -hmm. early on in that war. Mm -hmm. And I was a tough, it was a, it was a weird shadow after the World War II. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm, I don't think I ever learned much about the Korean War. For me, it was all learning about it, right? Reading the newspapers there. Yeah, well, it occurred in the era that you're writing about where people just didn't talk about yeah. stuff, about trauma. I mean, it, it, everybody's holding the lid on, you know, in your book. Uh, there's so much silence. Almost everything important isn't ever frontally addressed. Yeah. Well, there was this trauma of two world wars that America had been involved in, and then, of course, the Korean War. And it, it seemed as though the, the country sort of conspired um, in a way to... Um, to create an illusion of perfection and safety, you know, when in fact the world was really coming apart at the seams. I, I agree with that. I mean, that was, that was my experience of it. I, I mean, of reading about it and, and reading people's memories of it was that the trauma, certainly of World War II, what all these men went through, and I'm thinking about my grandparents and how different they were from my parents. Um, and I think the feeling was they had gone through this and they had fought in order not to have to talk about it again. Because certainly my two grandfathers never wanted to talk about it. They had fought to just, just to have the house and a life and, and they'd earned it. And, and of course, again, a child of the seventies to me, it just looks like it's never going to work. You can't force people to do that. But I, I started, I tried to empathize with the emotion behind it, you know, the feeling of just, just let it, we've got peace now, let's just, it'll be good like this forever. Mm. And then it's panic and anxiety and fear almost immediately. And, and what Pearlie is doing, um, you know, constantly is trying to protect these, these men. Yeah. Men who, you know, in, over the, the previous couple decades were, were sent off to die, you know. Uh, fragile creatures in their own set way, right? Yeah. So yeah, she I creates these protected spaces for them. Yeah. And it all backfires. Okay. Right. Well, because it's, I mean, she does something that is so extreme, which is just, <laughs> she starts, she, um, you know, she, she, she gets a doorbell that doesn't ring too loudly and a dog that doesn't bark. And she clips the news, the bad news out of the newspaper. To protect her husband from yeah. bad news. She thinks he has a weak heart. Right. She has a slight misunderstanding of something she heard. And, um. And she just goes to an extreme with it. I And in my head, I was thinking the way a new bride goes to the house, or I imagined in the 50s, and, and make, makes that her domain. She's going to take care of it all and make it perfect. 
she has her own fantasy about what she's going to do, the way he does, and so she goes to this extreme. Mm. He didn't ask for it. No. No. And and like a lot of very self-sacrificing women, she never really attends to her own needs. Right. Never even considers what they might be, <laughs> which is I think which was my idea in the book, which was that suddenly she's um she sort of asked what do you want? Mm. And she doesn't have an answer. Mm. And so the person who asks her says, well, I have an idea what you might want. How about this? Mm. Um, we've already talked about the fact that you're, you're writing a female character here. So you're crossing a gender line in a sense. Mm-hmm. You're also crossing racial lines. Um, you, you write from the perspective of a black character. Right. It, it reminded me of something I, I read uh, a few years ago by Charles Johnson, a, a black American novelist and Pulitzer Prize winner. He was writing about the fact that, quote-unquote, not once in 50 years have I seen the complexity and multifaceted character of my people rendered by white authors in a way I could honestly identify with. Yeah. So there's this idea that while authors can travel back in time, can imagine their way into the heads of all kinds of fictional characters, that for some reason race is not one of those crossable lines in the imagination. Well... What do you think of that? It's hard, it's hard to respond to it <laughs> because um, I feel like that may be true. It's still the job of, of the fiction writer and the artist to use their imagination to understand and empathize with people different from themselves. I, that's, I feel like, my job. I, I'm not an autobiographical writer, and I write in order to understand that experience. Mm-hmm. And of course... It's an imaginary trip I'm on, you know, I can't, but what I didn't want to do was to do some kind of imitation. So like writing as a woman, writing as a, as a African American character, I thought of mostly the character and I tried not to think about making sure that character sounded realistic by whatever that would mean. I want it to sound like a real person. Yeah. And I think, you know, what Charles Johnson would say, I wanted it to be a com- complicated person um, and real because of that. Now, whether it's authentic sounding is, I feel, for someone else to decide and not something I was interested in because I thought that's failure. That would actually be insulting <laughs> if I tried to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make a real person. Yeah. That's, that's what I felt like the job was. I don't know. And, you know, I don't talk about it a lot in interviews. People don't bring it up much. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I think maybe um, with time, society has relaxed about that a little bit. Uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was still possible to say that white authors just couldn't, couldn't write black characters. I think that's true, too. Yeah. I think that there was, a, in, the, in, a, in, the, in the height of identity politics, there would be an idea that... For a white author to write in the voice of a of a black character would was absurd. Mm. Whole, you couldn't do that mm-hmm. because writing was an expression of identity mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. thoroughly, mm-hmm. and it was to be studied as an experience of identity. And I think that that's one way to look at fiction. And now um, I feel like we might be in a different place. And in fact, I feel we might be in a place where actually. Um, when I look around and I don't see a lot of black characters in fiction, I think, well, who else's job is it to do that? 
but me. Um, certainly I see there's a lot of gay characters that show up in fiction by not gay writers. And I think it's great. Mm -hmm. Um, because I think there needs to be a discussion of that experience. Now it shouldn't be uniform. There shouldn't be a standard character. And I looked at the fifties and I thought, I don't write about race. Then I am a coward because that's what's going on. That's really it. So that's my answer. <laughs> that was, you know, and then I thought about it once hard and I never thought about it again. I didn't look back. And let me remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and in this interview from 2008, I spoke to the novelist Andrew Sean Greer about his latest work, The Story of a Marriage. Um, we talked about some of your historical research and some of the, the sort of worlds that you, you, you plunged into. There's the world of race relations in the 1950s. There's the world of, you know, of war and men going off to war or not. Um, there's also the world of gay life in the 1950s. Yeah. Because you do have gay characters. Um, I want to check out some of the facts that you relate to us in the book because they're, they're pretty amazing. Now, we, I mean, we know that, that society was homophobic and that there were oppressive laws and practices. But I did not know, for instance, that not only were the police actively spying on and busting gay men, but there was even a potential penalty of life in prison. Yeah. And that men were sterilized as an alternative to prison. Yeah, that was the alternative. Not not in 1953. It was in the... I think it was over by then. Uh-huh. But that was... That was one of the... Po and and I, I think the numbers... you quote a numbers, figure. 20,000 20, men in California... Were sterilized. Were sterilized. For, for what, what was the charge? Perversion or something? Perversion. And so it wasn't just homosexuality. It was all kinds of perversions, and some of which we might think now, okay, good idea oh, to sterilize Oh, they them. lumped... Yeah. All those it's things. all lumped together, yeah. but it is impossible to separate them out yeah. because they were all seen as yeah. the most dangerous kind of perversion. Yeah. I think it's mostly homosexuality. Just looking at when I'm reading the, the papers and they list all the men arrested, it's always, it's always the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, at the time, the police got so worked up about this that they would actually build a secret ceiling in a room where they thought gay men were going to have a party of some kind and would watch this party going on until they saw something illegal happen and then break through the ceiling and arrest everyone. It's just now we can't believe anyone would bother. But that was what it was. It was so intense at the time. Now, this was not in the paper. Um, you could, it would, in a secret way, you could see all these stories show up, but they were sort of hidden. Um, and so I had to do a lot of other research and listen to interviews. I didn't interview any men or women, but I there were a lot of archives of, of tape interviews. Um, and, 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 and being gay, uh, being what they called a sexual deviant or whatever, whatever was thought of as a, as a threat to the nation's security. I mean, McCarthy... At Al, also, were finding perverts along with communist sympathizers, weren't they? Right. Oh, you would be fired immediately. Yeah. And that was definitely in the paper, and I put that in that you would just the State Department would fire hundreds uh -huh. for uh -huh. I don't know what well, I don't know what it's based on. And may I just say that this is still going on? You know, uh, 
it's it it looks like George Bush recently fired a woman in the State Department who was like a complete Republican partisan um for being a lesbian. That's what it appears is really? still going on. I know this is happening in the eighties. Was you couldn't get a security clearance in the eighties and early nineties mm-hmm. if if you were gay because they thought that you could be blackmailed by the Soviets. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That was the usual remember thing. Remember the Soviet? That's right. I remember that. Yeah. So it's it's not us who are saying that uh, you know you're beyond the pale, but someone might blackmail you because it's such a shameful thing. Because it's such a shameful <laughs> thing. So you you can't be trusted. You you have something. They have something yeah, on you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I see their thinking, but it's appalling. And it's obviously something else beside it, which is basically the, we, we can't have these people around. It's, it's interesting. A, a couple of years ago, I interviewed um, a black writer who um, I asked what period in history he would most have liked to visit. And he's a big fan of 30s and 40s sort of Broadway musicals mm-hmm. and uh, the... The, the language and the styles of that era. And he said, well, I'd like to go back to New York in the 30s and 40s, but, and he thought for a minute, I'd want to be white. Because in order to do the things he wanted to do, he would have had to have been white. And it struck me that, you know, not only does um, racism and uh, other forms of oppression, not only does it affect what you can do here and now, it also sort of affects what you can imagine. You know, where you can imagine yourself. And I just wonder about, I wanted to ask you, does... As a gay man, does this idea of traveling back to other eras, which you do in your books a lot, is that affected by the circumstances that gay men confronted in those times? Yeah, absolutely. And in a way, we're touching on what my next book will be about, in a way. Not the gay part, but about precisely different different times and how those kind of oppressions can alter what would be a fun experience otherwise. I mean, I do actually think about that a lot. I think, you know, the 20s sounds like a great time in a lot of ways. Maybe it would have been okay to be gay, <laughs> but it doesn't, you know, like Germany in the late 20s mm. sounds mm. like a great, but then a couple of years later, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And it does, it makes you sad sometimes when you think, oh, you know, wouldn't it have been fun to have been in the 50s? And you think, well, not for me. Right. You know, or... um you know, just the early part of the 20th century would have been so fascinating, but not for me. Yeah. I, you know, I, okay. And certainly not for most other people. I've got it great as it goes. But it, but it interests me to think about what would have been different. You know, you know, we're talking today. I just spent the day down at City Hall watching couples getting married, mm. you know, mm. and just crying my eyes out. We, we should say that we're talking the day after same-sex marriage became officially legal in um, California. And today, on this day, the day after, is a real sort of stampede to the altar. It's been amazing. I was there yesterday at 5.01 when one couple got married. The very first. The very first. And then I went, I mean, I I do my research at the library across the street, so it's it's easy for me to do that and then come over. Yeah, I think 150 couples are getting married today in the San Francisco City Hall and certainly elsewhere in California, you know. Hundreds and hundreds. Mm-hmm. So it's shocking to look at that, and then to look back in the in the past. It's interesting for me to place, not necessarily myself back there. And then it, what's more interesting is to try not to be too sentimental about it either. 
because the gay characters aren't necessarily perfect or that likable. They're human beings. And I'm trying not to make it be a, a puppet show of politics. Mm. Um, you mentioned, we, we were talking about um, same-sex marriage. Uh, and the book, of course, is the story of a marriage. I wonder how much you think, I mean, the title suggests that you think this is the story of marriage. That it does perfect suggest union, that, yes. Perfect unions are not possible. That, that we will always be, in some way, isolated from each other. That's, I feel like I've, I'm a fairly cheerful person, but yeah. that still must be true. <laughs> I, I guess that must be true. Mm. I, I know, it just come, I come across that way mm. in the books. I think that must be Were you be born so. with that sentiment, or is that something you've had to learn? I mean, you would think I'm an identical twin. I would feel like closeness <laughs> to other people is the easiest thing in the world. But maybe it makes me always surprised that there is always some... I think it's fine. I think, you know, a, a marriage of two people who are individuals and can accept and be amused by that instead of allowing it to always frustrate them that they are not each other mm. would turn out the happiest thing I could think of, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So in some ways, maybe there's a cautionary part, tale part of it for myself. I think often that's what the books are as I write. The Max Tivoli book was definitely a cautionary tale for myself. Um, you know, as we said, this this book is 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 about secrets. It's about silences and about the things we withhold from each other and about not knowing each other, not revealing ourselves. Pearlie writes, "I knew silence, which, like an exotic poison, odorless, tasteless, brings a subtle madness to the victim." I mean, she's writing in the fifties, where you know the people are inhibited, where they're not saying some of the most important things that are on their mind. She's also starting to see a glimmer of the the sixties right around the corner, where people will soon be saying everything and yeah. bearing everything. I wonder where you stand. I mean, you grew up in the seventies. It seems to me that the seventies didn't work out all that well either. Saying no. and doing everything doesn't seem to be the cure. Saying nothing. And, uh, you know, being corseted, as some of the characters in your book literally yeah, are, yeah. isn't the happiest thing in the world. Is there, is there a happy medium between secrecy and, and full disclosure? Well, there's a difference between full honesty and full disclosure. Okay. I mean, full disclosure, I, we must be seeing it in the sort of, in the YouTube, MySpace, Facebook things. Mm. Although there's nothing to disclose, honestly. <laughs> Look, it's like... <laughs> Young people telling the secrets of their lives, or it's really not that much. Um, and, it, and it's not actually, I think, that honest on it a lot of times. I think it's very glib. Um, but, I mean, my thought when I wrote the book was, okay, the 50s was, like, the children of those parents, when they realized their parents had kept quiet, lied, repressed everything, mm. they were so angry, they thought, we're never going to do that again. We're going to say it all. Mm -hmm. And it, they reacted the way children do by going to the extreme, you know. But it, it obviously was the wrong thing. So I, I, I do believe in not having secrets exactly, but I believe in having privacy, I guess. Mm. And not just having, because it turned out, I think, really selfish, self-centered, didn't it? I don't know. I mean, I was a kid in the 70s, mm. so we didn't, there's nothing to well, I have sit a through group therapy, that's all. <laughs> I have a great anecdote about um, the impossibility of revealing everything. Um, 
It's a, it's a story that Tom Wolfe tells about the 1960s, where he and, I guess, uh, Herb Kane and Marshall McLuhan all went to a naked strip club, you know, a totally nude strip club. I would love to Early have been 60s. there with them. Well, here's how Tom Wolfe tells it. He says they go in, and this is when such things were brand new, and um, Herb Kane's jaw drops, and, sa- and he says, they're totally naked. And McLuhan says... They're not naked. They're wearing us. <laughs> That's very Marshall McLuhan. <laughs> it's true. I mean, that makes sense to me. It does yeah. to me, too. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and that, there's something to be said for, you know, Gypsy Rose Lee, who barely <laughs> took anything off, right? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I hope it's true. I really hope it's true and not just a tall tale. <laughs> That's Tom Wolfe's version of it, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he told it after Ma- both Marshall McLuhan and, and uh, Herb Cain weren't around to confirm or deny. Well done, yeah. Tom Wolfe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he claimed not to understand what Marshall McLuhan meant, but I think I know what he meant. I think I know what he meant. Yeah, yeah. because they're still... They're wearing all the projections of the audience. You know? You're yeah, not still really protected. bearing yourself. Yeah. yeah. In fact, they're actually coated with more projections, more lust, and more other things than they are when they're wearing if clothes. they had seven veils yeah. over them. Andy, um, this book you completed some time ago. I mean, it, once a book is published, it's actually quite old for the, the it's author. A year. It's new yeah. for everybody else. Yeah. Is it sort of in the past for you, or is it alive in some form? Uh, it, it comes alive again in a weird way. You know, it's like leftovers that taste different the next day. <laughs> you Because I think the weirdest thing is that you... Um, you're done, you think you understand the book, you know what it's about, it comes out, and the things that people talk about have nothing to do with what you wrote. It's happened every time with me. You have no idea what you've written, apparently. And uh, now at this point, I've done enough interviews that I don't remember what I thought the book I'd written was. Yeah. Well, Andy, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much. That was great. Andrew Sean Greer's latest novel is The Story of a Marriage, now out in paperback. And that ends this archive edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and I will be back next week with something new and exciting. So join me then. And don't go away in the meantime, because Brett Taylor is here with the Latin Quarter from 1 to 3. I can see no matter how near you be you never be in the bend of your embrace for dreams are just like wine and I am drunk with mine